You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. This week, we hear how research should be geared to help patients take control of their health. If we are on the mission of trying to use evidence to improve health care, we're failing at the underface between practitioners and that evidence in one hand, because a lot of practitioners have trouble changing the way they do things, and we're failing at the interface between practitioners and patients because we're not able to engage the patients in an effective way that helps them figure out the best care for themselves. But first, a clinical review this week looks at the diagnosis and treatment of carotid atherosclerosis. When to screen, what should the threshold for treatment be? We're particularly interested in this at the BMJ, given our Too Much Medicine campaign and the proliferation of commercial screening companies offering this as an option. Sophie Cook, Clinical Reviews Editor, finds out more. This week's clinical review in the BMJ looks at the diagnosis and management of carotid atherosclerosis. One of the authors of the review, Professor Alan Davies from Imperial College, joins me by phone to discuss the condition. Professor Davies, how common is carotid atherosclerosis? Common atherosclerosis is probably quite quite common. It affects anything up to around about 5% of the po- European population. But there are certain groups in which there is a higher prevalence, such as people who are at high risk of atherosclerosis, such as those with high blood pressure, smokers, and those with an elevated cholesterol. Okay. And how does carotid atherosclerosis present clinically? Clinically, it can present symptomatically by somebody presenting with something called amaurosis fugax, which is where they see like a curtain coming down to the eye, or they can have what's called a transient ischemic attack where they lose power to their opposite arm or leg, or they can develop a full stroke, or they can have a problem with their speech, which could be long-lasting. If it lasts for more than 24 hours, it's thought of as being a stroke, or if it's less than 48 hours, it's thought to be a TIA. They can also present as asymptomatic by being picked up by a doctor listening with a stethoscope and hearing something called a carotid brewery, or in some countries, and there are some commercial companies in the UK, and sometimes in routine clinical practice in high-risk groups, some people do a carotid duplex scan, which will pick up a narrowing in the carotid artery. If we think a bit about the symptomatic patients first, how is the diagnosis of carotid atherosclerosis made after someone presents with, say, a TIA? Now in the United Kingdom, they would usually get referred immediately to a stroke unit or to a vascular surgeon and they would be offered an investigation, usually a duplex ultrasound to identify a lesion in the carotid artery, or they may have a CT angiogram or an MRA, which would also look at the blood vessels. Which out of those is the best investigation for picking up carotid atherosclerosis? Um, Probably the the best and simplest tool is to use carotid duplex, and it it is also probably the cheapest of the investigations. Okay. And how is the severity graded? Can you explain a bit about that? Right. There are two things that you're actually looking at. One, you're actually looking at the degree of blood flow and also the nature of the plaque that's causing the narrowing. If you have got somebody with a symptom and a stenosis on hemodynamic measurements of more than 70%, that would be indicative of somebody who might need to have a more aggressive interventional treatment. Between 50% and 69%, if it's 
the patient presents early, that may be an indication for more interventional treatment. If they have a stenosis of less than 50%, it is thought that they would be best treated by best medical therapy. When we look at the nature of the plaque, this can be graded using ultrasound, using various classifications, and basically looking to see if it's uh, echolucent or echogenic plaque, and you may, on some more refined techniques using either microbubbles, MRI, or PET scanning, be able to see if there's inflammation in, in the plaque, but most people would rely on the degree of narrowing as being the decision as to whether to offer any other form of intervention. Okay, you talk in your uh, review about endarterectomy in patients who are suitable for this. Do you want to run us through that? Right. Carotid endarterectomy is a operation that can be performed either under general anaesthetic or under local stroke regional anaesthetic where the patient is awake. Basically, the operation involves an incision in the neck, identification of the common internal and external carotid arteries, and it involves looking carefully at the nerves that are in the neck so they don't get damaged. The blood vessels are slung, an anticoagulant is given, clamps are applied to the arteries, an incision is made in the artery, the diseased segment is cored out, and usually a patch then is used to close the wound in the artery so that there is no narrowing of the artery when it's closed up by suturing and a drain and the skin is then closed. The patient is then usually looked after very carefully for four hours to look for changes in blood pressure and seeing if there are any neurological changes then usually the patient is discharged from hospital the following day. You also mentioned uh, in your review about stents and the role of those. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Right. Carotid stenting is a potential alternative option to carotid surgery. In the symptomatic group, there is some controversy, but most of the evidence would suggest that carotid endarterectomy does give an overall a better result in terms of stroke and death rate. There is some evidence to suggest that in the surgical group there may be a higher incidence of myocardial infarction. However, if you were to look at all the U.S. registries, there is a lot of evidence to suggest that carotid endarterectomy is better than carotid stenting. Similarly, with the asymptomatic group, there is quite good evidence to suggest that carotid endarterectomy is, again, probably the treatment of choice rather than carotid stenting. However, in the United States, it would be fair to say that carotid stenting is very popular and an international consortia have just publishing something in stroke, really trying to restrict the use of carotid stenting in those patients with asymptomatic disease because it has, in the United States it has become a very popular intervention. Thinking a little bit more about asymptomatic patients, Obviously, as doctors, we're traditionally taught to listen for carotid breweries. What's the value in listening for a brewery? In my opinion, there really is probably very little because if it's positive, it'll tell you that there's something there. But if it's negative, it is relatively meaningless. So my own view is there probably is very little benefit, though I accept it's part of routine clinical Mm. teaching. If a brewery is picked up on auscultation, what would you recommend as the best course of action? I think the answer is you probably 
would send somebody to have their carotid scans depending on the age of the patient. I think if the patient is under 75, then he is somebody he would probably think about um, certainly doing a doing a scan on. And just finally, um, are there any recommendations regarding screening for carotid atherosclerosis? Because you mentioned there are some private companies now which are doing this and offering it to the public. I think the, the difficulty is what you are doing the carotid screening for. If you are doing carotid screening to see if somebody has got a thickening of the arteries and therefore just to suggest to them that they need better medical therapy with antiplatelets and statins, then there is a potential argument. But looking at a population-based screening program to look at intervention, there really is really very little evidence to support the use of routine carotid screening looking at offering an interventional therapy. One of the high-risk groups are the patients with claudication because they already have underlying arterial disease and it's certainly not cost-effective to screen these patients and there's an increasing view that there probably is very little benefit in screening patients who are just about to receive coronary artery bypass grafting. So overall, there really is no very good reason for doing carotid screening. Thank you, Professor Davies. That clinical review is online this week. As Sophie said, that article is available on bmj.com. And if you're interested in the problem of overdiagnosis, we have a campaign running. Links from the podcast page. Now, this week, the BMJ's editorial board got together to discuss strategy. And they were particularly excited by patient participation. How should it be represented and encouraged by the BMJ? We captured some of their views. Donald McCauley, BMJ's primary care editor, led the discussion. So before we start, let me ask you to introduce yourselves, just if you give your name and and what your background is. On my left. Uh, Victor Montori, Diabetes Doctor, Health Services Research from Mayo Clinic in North America. Brian Haynes, McMaster University, Infermologist and Diabetes Doctor too. Tessa Richards, I'm Assistant Editor at the uh, BMJ. Uh, Paul Glasgow, General Practitioner and uh, Clinical Epidemiologist from Bond University, Australia. I'm Marty McCary. I'm a surgeon at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore in the U.S. I'm Lillian Anekwe. I'm Consumer Health Editor at the BMJ Group. Dave DeBroncard, better known on the internet as ePatient Dave. Lillian, let's talk about the barriers to progress in terms of integrating patients into our decision-making. Have you thoughts on this? Well, we found that often there is uh, a willingness amongst amongst doctors certainly to engage patients and include them in the decision-making process. I mean, there isn't, I don't think, a a widespread resistance to shared decision-making. What it may sometimes come down to is lack of knowledge, lack of access to the tools, um, making it practical, and that's where some of the work that Victor Montori has done at the Mayo Clinic is really nice in terms of integrating it into practice. But often doctors don't know how to start the conversations, where to get access to the tools, and just sort of more pragmatically also time, you know, and time pressures and so on. So I, I don't think that there is um, a resistance. Everyone recognises that it's a noble and a necessary aspiration. It's just sort of taking the step and transforming the, the willingness and the aspiration to changing the mindset and making it really an integral part of practice. Brian, I mean, you've spent a lifetime in creating evidence for doctors. 
Do patients have access to that information? How do we see ourselves as producing information for patients? How can that information fit into shared decision making? That's an impossible question to answer because <laughs> nobody's really taken a look at that in detail that I know of. It is absolutely a key barrier to the success of evidence-based medicine that patients don't follow the treatments that are prescribed even though when those are the best treatments. Practitioners are the last to know if the patient isn't following the treatment, so there's obviously some aspect of sharing information that needs to be overcome. If we are on the mission of trying to use evidence to improve health care, we're failing at the underface between practitioners and that evidence in one hand because a lot of practitioners have trouble changing the way they do things, and we're failing at the interface between practitioners and patients because we're not able to engage the patients in an effective way that helps them figure out the best care for themselves. Dave, we're failing. What do you, what do you think on this? I've seen repeatedly that we talk about patient compliance, compliance, adherence, whatever, but in the same breath, we ought to be discussing the difficulties of physician compliance. The rule of thumb that I hear people say all the time uh, is that physicians generally deliver the standard of care about half the time. For instance, a baby aspirin for certain people, take off a diabetic socks and inspect their feet, says to me that the real issue here is human adherence to a plan. And that, as that begs the question, so what's going on here? Well, one thing I've seen is in both cases, patients and physicians, the effective solution is not to provide them with more information. That does not work, whether you're talking about educating patients about what they should do, what will happen if they don't, and so on, or educating clinicians about the problems of hand washing. We need to look somewhere else. The most effective approach to that that I discovered is the field which you may all be well familiar with, the field of behavioral economics. I just encourage us all not to think in terms of providing better education because there's more to it. Marty, from your surgical background, give us a little bit of information and reflection on, on this business involving patients. We have a lot of medical knowledge. We have a lot of studies with good uh, medical biology science. So we don't need more medical biology science. We need implementation science. We need patient-centered outcomes to focus on these things. There's been a bit of a disconnect for a while on what we're interested in and what patients are interested in. That brings us really into our next question, because from the perspective of a medical journal, what we really are interested in doing is looking at what research is being done what should be done, and the type of research that we should be publishing. I, I'm nearly afraid to ask Victor this because I know he's done quite a lot of work in this area, but Victor, what research should we be doing? And as a medical journal, what type of research should we be publishing? There's a systematic review of over 80 randomized trials of uh, shared decision-making interventions, most of them tools, that show that uh, they are effective in general at uh, uh, doing what Dave says is, uh, is not very helpful, which is to introduce ideas of uh, pros and cons and options to patients and, uh, and transfer that knowledge and give patients a sense of, uh, com uh, of comfort in their decision-making. But they have very uh, mixed uh, results, if, if not negative results, on uh, adherence or compliance and improve uh, and changes in uh, choice and uh, 
and uh, on, on, on clinical outcomes. So in terms of, of, of arguing for the value of engaging patients, uh, there is still quite a bit of research that is needed to figure out uh, whether the tools that are being developed now, are they ineffective or are we, are we supposed to be satisfied with the extent to which they improve decision making? Mm. Thanks. Victor, you've introduced a couple of questions for, for Brian here on, on your left, because Brian sees the research coming through. He knows the quality of research that's there. Have you a view on what we should be doing and what journals like the BMJ should be publishing? Well, Dave's right on it I, in terms of information. I wouldn't say that information is not right. It's not sufficient. It's, I think, though, an essential ingredient in whatever we do. The research we need exactly. in the area of implementation science is called knowledge translation research where we are, implementation science in the UK and Europe. It's called comparative effectiveness research in the UK. It's basically the same area that we're getting at. That is, how do we get value for money or how do we get a big, bigger bang out of the investment that's been put into trying to get treatments that truly are better than the alternatives that are available today. We don't know exactly how to do this. If we did know how to do it, we should be doing it, but we're doing a lot of frustrating things in the meantime. So we need a bigger investment. That means shifting investment from biologic research, because there's only so much money to go around, into implementation research. And that's a big problem within the research community because that means there's going to be a turf war about who gets the money. But if we don't do the implementation research, we should shut off the whole research enterprise. We're wasting the money in doing it. Thank you very much, Brian. Paul, now you're a methodologist. There's a challenge from Brian to you to look at this type of research, implementation, science. Do we have the tools to do this type of research? We have lots of tools at the moment, and but we need to develop more. Victor quoted the 80 randomised trials, that's fantastic, but there's nearly a million randomised trials that have been done in, in medicine generally. Um, so it's a very small component still. We've made a lot of progress. I think things have really changed about the, the degree of patient involvement, both in the consultation um, and in research and in, in um, the reporting of journal articles. But we've got a long way to go and it just needs resources and attention. Thanks, Paul. Tessa, from the journal perspective, you have, a, you have a view in this? It's accepted by all health systems. It's blazoned in their policies that health systems should be patient-centred and they should involve patients and the public uh, in all of their policies. And yet the methods by which they do so are not specified and I think not agreed on. So we're still really, that's a whole new sort of research methodology, it seems to me, around there. Is what is the best way? to engage and involve patients. And uh, I think that the um, James Lind Alliance has worked quite hard on that in, mm. in the UK to get patients and clinicians together in a room to try and sort of identify key research questions, uh, find out what matters to them. Dave, we'll pass back to you for the very final word on this. How do you think we're doing as a research community? Have you any final views on us? What should we do from the patient's perspective? To the people I've discussed this with, uh, on the patient side, it's, and some on the clinician side, the issue of reproducibility. If the evidence that clinicians are are disciplined to use is shaky, it undermines the usefulness of the whole process. Uh, and that's not just a patient issue. To me, it's a disservice to clinicians. Uh, but the, you know, the the MGen study where they took. 50, 53 landmark cancer studies and were unable to reproduce, I think, 46 of them. Uh, I would like to see 
some of our research budget be allocated to firming up what we think we already know? Thank well, you. thank you very much indeed. I mean, the idea of reproducibility, of quality research, of producing the evidence, that's the business we're in. Thank you very much, team. It's been fantastic. I hope you've enjoyed it. And thank you very much on the phone, Dave. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be reporting from Evidence Live, the Evidence-Based Medicine Conference, and we'll hear more about hypertension at the WHO. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.